Hello, welcome to the Grace Apostolic Church Podcast. We are so thankful that you joined us. We hope this podcast serves as a tool that encourages you and helps you navigate through this journey called life. If you wouldn't mind, we would greatly appreciate it if you would subscribe and review this podcast channel. Your feedback matters, and we want to serve you to the best of our abilities. Thank you so much. Let's go to the Word. Mark chapter 14, verse 3. And Jesus being in Bethany, in the house of Simon the leper, as he sat at meat, there came a woman having an alabaster box of ointment, of spikenard, very precious. And she broke the box and poured it on his head. And there were some that had indignation within themselves and said, Why was this waste of the ointment made? For it might have been sold for more than 300 pence and have been given to the poor. And they murmured against her. And Jesus said, Let her alone. Why trouble ye her? She hath wrought a good work on me, for you have the poor with you always. And whensoever ye will, you may do them good, but me you have not always. She hath done what she could. She has come aforehand to anoint my body to the burying. Verily I say unto you, wheresoever this gospel shall be preached throughout the whole world, this also that she hath done shall be spoken of for memorial of her. Is that an incredible statement that Jesus makes about this action of Mary? That everywhere the gospel is preached, throughout the entire world, right along with it, will be what Mary has done. And it shall be a memorial for her. I'm preaching memorial moment. Memorial moment. God bless you. You may be seated. had the privilege just a few years ago to go to Hawaii and evangelize, right? Well, it was somewhat of a third, fourth, fifth, sixth honeymoon, and also we ministered while we were there. And if you're going to be an evangelist, hey, you should go to Hawaii and evangelize, or Alaska, or South Africa, or wherever God opens the doors. And as we were there in South Africa, one of the highlights was we visited the USS Arizona Memorial at Pearl Harbor. There underneath the waters of that harbor is that steel iron mass of a ship that was sunken when Japan came with their bombs into the harbor many years ago. And still within that ship, 1,102 fellow Americans are still entombed. It was very interesting to me that when we prepared to walk out on that boardwalk over top of where the USS Arizona was seen, that there were Asian and Americans alike with tears in their eyes, some throwing roses into the harbor as an act of grievance or sorrow or pain and hurt. And at that time, there was even our tour guides were individuals that lived and were part of the military at Pearl Harbor when that tragic day happened. And you can believe when they spoke about their fallen comrades still entombed in the USS Arizona. It was still with a choke in their voice and a tear in their eye and demanded that we were respectful of the sobering memorial of what happened to us as a nation and what we live for and what we fought for and what individuals gave their life 
to somehow try to preserve and we have the benefits of it even today. That's what memorials do. Memorials cause us to remember and never forget the price and the sacrifice that is paid. And not only the price and the sacrifice, but what would they give their lives for? Why was this sacrifice and this price exacted? Never forget this memorial. I've had the privilege to evangelize and also tour Washington, D.C., and there I stood face Abe Lincoln at the memorial called the Lincoln Memorial. There commemorating our great president of the USA. And on its side chambers is the famous Gettysburg Address that most of us probably learned in third grade and probably a few of us can still quote. Four score and seven years ago, our fathers brought forth on this continent a new nation conceived in liberty and dedicated to the proposition that all men are created equal. And that powerful message that he spoke, that Gettysburg Address, as we call it, was the heartbeat of a great president that shaped, even to the day, so much shaped who we are as the United States of America. It was at that same Lincoln Memorial that Martin Luther King Jr. stood and began to give his famous speech of, I have a dream. I have a dream. I have a dream, he said, that one day this nation will rise up and live out the meaning of its creed. We hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal. I have a dream. And Martin Luther King Jr. shaped our nation. Because of his dream. And we have memorials to a great president. And even memorials to MLK Jr. This is indeed what we as a blended nation are. And what we stand for. Is that every citizen should have rights and places in this opportunity of the United States of America. I have traveled just a couple of years ago and was able to go into Tower One in New York City. There at the base of this tower that is at least one of the largest towers in the city is Ground Zero. Ground Zero, the memorial of where the Twin Towers stood. And there are plenty plaques to remind us about terrorists trying to destroy our way of life, about a cowardly attack that will not face its enemy but comes sneaking into planes. And we remember every time that we see that memorial, the terrorist attack that came upon us and the men and women that gave their lives trying to help those in the towers, the police and the fire department and the fights that were fought subsequently to try to destroy and to get rid of this type of terrorist organization we remember and we don't ever want to forget who we are and the price that was paid men and women that gave their lives. Even long before our time, there's still a cry that we can remember from elementary school. Remember the Alamo as heroes like Daniel Boone, Jim Bowie, gave their lives so that Texas could be a part now of the United States of America. But memorials are not limited to the United States of America or nations even across our globe. But God himself is huge on memorials. In Joshua 4 and 7, it is now the time when Joshua is leading the children of Israel into victory in the battle of Jericho. And they are walking once again through the river Jordan on dry ground. And God tells Joshua, get one man from every tribe to go into the river that is dry. They're walking through to victory on dry ground. And let each of them get a rock or a stone and place it upon their shoulders and bring it out. These are not small rocks you'd put in your pocket. 
These are stones that you would have to carry upon your shoulders. And God says to Joshua, build a rostrum. Build a podium. Build a memorial. Not on the banks of Jericho's river, Jordan, but build it right in the shallow waters. This gives me a lot of understanding that God is saying this. There will come days and times when famine comes and when drought comes and when the river is no longer swollen with the great water of blessings. Now even in the tough times you're going to see even more prominent the memorial that God has given you. And when you see that, you'll remember all over again, God brought us out and God brought us in. He is a supernatural God. And we are to remember what God has done for us and who we are in God. Twice in the Word of God, Exodus 3.15, Psalms 135.13, this is powerful. Twice in the Word of God we find this understanding that God says, I have given you a covenant and the memorial of my covenant is I will give you my name. Every time that you speak the name of Jesus, it's not just a magic word that you use over sickness and disease, but it should be a reminder, a memorial to us that our God is a personal God. He knows us by name, and He has given us His name that we might know Him by name. He is a personal God that loves us individually. That name should be a memorial of the price he paid for that relationship to cleanse us at Calvary's Hill. We find Nehemiah going back to the ruins of a ransacked land that used to be his homeland, Israel. But now for years, nothing has lived there but the wild animals and weeds and un. Uh, planted trees are growing everywhere and all that's left of what used to be a city is burned rubble and stone and it is taken over by the earth itself. No wonder when he begins to build a wall that Sam Ballot and Tobiah come and make fun of him, laughing at him. What kind of wall are you building? Walls are meant to protect what is inside and to keep what's outside from getting inside. What are you building a wall for, the wild beast? What are you going to build a temple and a tabernacle for? Nobody even lives in this place yet. And Nehemiah begins to give them understanding that this wall and this building is a memorial unto what God has done for us. And if nothing else comes of this present and future, we're building it as a memorial that God has been our God. I, I want you to know that every time a car goes by this place and they look up at this beautiful building and see that expansive parking lot, it's not just saying here's where a church is, but it's a memorial of individual after individual whose lives have been changed, people who've received miracles, healings, signs and wonders, who've received the Holy Holy Ghost, even like last night, and their lives are totally changed. This building and all the sweat and the tears and the finance that you have poured into it, it's not just a building where we come to have social gatherings. It is a memorial to what God has done in our lives. In the New Testament, we find God still extending memorials. Because it's Cornelius, that centurion of the Italian band, that Gentile whose prayer life is so faithful and the sacrifice of his funds or his alms is so sacrificial that it comes up before God as a memorial. God hasn't forgotten the sacrifice of his giving and God has not just put his prayers away even though he's a Gentile. And now the memorial that every time, if you will, God turns around. There's that memorial. Cornelius is a praying man. 
He's a sacrifice. And God could not forget. He would always remember who Cornelius is. And so because of that, the Gentiles have now access to the New Testament covenant because of one of our ancestors that put memorials before God. I have come to a place in my life, I'm almost 30 years old now, well, almost twice 30 years old, not quite, but I'll be 54 later this year. I had to figure it up. I knew I was born in 66. And I've come to a place in my life where I'm not really trying to gauge the goals and the visions and what I can accomplish. But in reality, looking at my life and ministry, it's more about legacy. That if this is the last message that I will ever preach, what would my life be remembered as? What would individuals say about me? Are there any people that their life was changed for the kingdom because of what I was and who I am and the ministry that God called me to be. I guess it would be pretty neat to have maybe a street named after you, and we do this with our American heroes, and, and we have elementary schools that are Ronald Reagan or Reagan Elementary Schools, and, and we have, especially in Atlanta, Martin Luther King Jr., Boulevard Road, Drive, Circle, Terrace. I mean, in Atlanta, half the streets are Martin Luther King and the other half are Peachtree. If you've been there, you know what I'm talking about. So don't just put that in your GPS. You'll, you'll be lost forever. We, we memorialize great men of our nation by buildings or streets. And even, even in certain religious organizations, a great man, G.A. Mangan, has a building in Alexandria, Louisiana that is named after him and patriarch of our faith. And the next generation has built and named and perhaps you have halls and you have buildings named after great men or great women in our lives. But, but more than having that, and that would be significant, what would it be to have Jesus memorialize your life or heaven declare a memorial? of your ministry, how more important and valuable would that be? But when I look here and read the text, it's not even about her life. It's not about her ministry. It's about a moment. One moment. One moment in her life, and it was so powerful because of timing, that Jesus memorialized her. So get the picture of what's happening here. And I have studied this extensively. And I will tell you this. Some theologians believe that you can find two very similar stories of this in the gospel. In my findings, I have put these stories together and I find only one story with no contradictions of these stories being put together. You'll find this in Matthew 26, Mark 14, John 12, and Luke 7. And it's not duplicated any time in the Gospels like you will with the 4,000 fed and then the 5,000 fed. So that's two stories. But this seems to be just one story. And of the four Gospels, of course she's in every gospel because the Bible said everywhere the gospel is preached it will be spoken of her for what she has done Matthew 26, Mark 14, John 12, Luke 7. Only Luke 7 is not chronological in events. The others wait toward the end of their chapter when this particular situation or the end of their book when this story happens. But Luke brings them quickly in in chapter 7 because the characters in this story are very important characters that need to be mentioned more than just at the end of the gospel. So here we are and Jesus is celebrating the Passover, and this will be the last 
Passover that he will celebrate. And it is now that he has resided in Bethany, which is three or four miles from Jerusalem, a little bedroom community that could be even walked to as they did in that time. And Jesus is staying with some of his favorite people. Martha, Lazarus, Mary. As he is called, he beloved these individuals. But there's an invitation from an individual in the town whose name is Simon. And Simon invites Jesus and the disciples to eat at his house. Lazarus is also invited. Martha is also invited. It seems strange that Mary is not invited. Now, when you see Simon introduced in the Gospels, you'll find he's introduced slightly different ways, but put the picture all together. Matthew 26 and 6, it says, Simon the leper. Mark 14 and 3 calls him Simon the leper. Luke 7 and 4 says it was a Pharisee's house, and later Jesus addresses him as Simon. So it's obvious that this man is not a leper presently in the story, but he used to be a leper. Because leprosy in that day was very contagious. And when you had leprosy, you was put outside the city in a leper colony and not allowed to have fellowship with the community. So obviously, this is an individual that used to have leprosy. And probably because of his gratefulness to Jesus, Jesus probably healed him earlier in the Gospels. In fact, you can surmise that perhaps he's the leper of Mark 1 or the leper of Matthew chapter 8. So Jesus has been invited by Simon, who used to have leprosy, but probably Jesus healed him, and he's there to celebrate what God has done. He's got his family back. He's got his life back. He's got everything back, and he wants to celebrate Jesus. No doubt Martha was there because she's the best cook in town. And it's well known that she is the favorite cook, perhaps, of Jesus. Lazarus is there also representing a tremendous miracle because just a few short days before, Lazarus was dead. And Jesus spoke into the inky blackness of his grave, and Lazarus was resurrected. So it seems to be a party atmosphere, a celebration of the miraculous healing and the miraculous resurrection power of Jesus. And so they are reclining on pillows and eating off a a pallet close to the floor as the custom was, and they're enjoying their meal. Probably there's laughter. Maybe over in the corner, if he could afford it, there was live music as they're playing the harp, and there's joyous occasion, and Martha has cooked her best. Jesus favorite and everything is smelling so scrumptious and tasting so wonderful and then uninvited into the house comes Mary I wonder and this is just supposition if Simon had previous connection with Mary in sin or if not perhaps somebody in his family He seems to have a personal grudge and insult against Mary. And she walks into the room while they are laughing and perhaps telling jokes. And Of course, it's clean ones. Jesus is there, right? Telling jokes and eating and enjoying the celebration. But she comes in with tears pouring down her face. And within her hands is a stone vessel, soft, rock, alabaster. And when she gets to where Jesus is, she doesn't open it with a lid, but she breaks the alabaster box. She begins to pour spikenard over the head of Jesus. And you've got to realize what an interruption this is. While they're laughing and enjoying and celebrating, she has come in with soberness and with tears. And when she pours that spikenard, the spikenard is so powerful that they declared days later when he's sitting on the, when he's when he's pinned to the cross, he could still smell the spikenard that was upon his body. 
It is so potent. It is, it is so strong that now they can no longer taste the food in their mouth. All they smell, all they taste is spikenard. She has ruined their party, their jovality, their laughter. It's gone. And with tears, she begins to wash his feet. And she dries his feet with her hair. Now John 11 and 2 says very specifically, it was that Mary who anointed and dried the feet of Lazarus, Lazarus' sister. And now she is worshiping, thanking him because out of her, God had cast demons. Jesus had so ministered to her that sicknesses and disease, infirmities and possessions of her past, she was delivered and healed. And as this action is happening, Simon, as well as many of the other disciples, become upset at this display. They were having so much fun. They were celebrating. Everything was going good. This is this is uncalled for. This is out of place. This shouldn't be done here. It's not the appropriate and the right time to act this way and to do this. So they try to find as much fault as they can with her. And some are saying, what a waste. She just took an alabaster box full of spikenard and poured it out. This could have been sold for much, and most theologians agree that this amount would have been equal to a year's salary. So you put that into your pocketbook, and this is the amount that she poured out. Not giving it to the poor, not investing in the church building. She pours it out to worship him and anoint his body for the burial. And Simon himself, begins to remember who Mary used to be. Not who she is, but who she used to be. Isn't it strange that he used to be a leper, but he doesn't remember that. But she used to be a sinner and possessed and needed healing, and he remembers that. If Jesus really knew who this was, he would not allow this nonsense go on and so with the seemingly overall or at least the majority upset at this woman Jesus begins to speak she's doing for me what you have not washed my feet anointed my head even my home body and dried my feet as her tears had washed them and you have not. And then Jesus begins to make this statement that what she has done, everywhere the gospel will be preached, it will be preached. This action, this memorial moment, this moment will be memorialized right alongside of the gospel. I was raised in church. My mom was a basically a new convert when she got married to my dad, who was a new convert. <laughs> it probably wasn't the best thing, but that's what they did. Two new converts immediately began to have children, my sister and myself. So I was raised in the church. I think I was three days old. First time I went to an apostolic Pentecostal church in San Bernardino, California. Heard Howard Davis preach. I got the Holy Ghost at five years of age. Fayetteville, Georgia. Where my stepdad, when my dad died of a car accident, God put my mom and my stepdad together. His wife had died of cancer. 
now we have a blended family. My older sister, my younger sister, who my mom was pregnant with, my dad died in a car accident. And my stepdad's two children he had before his wife died of cancer. And now Anthony and Janine and Betty and myself and Tammy and Tina. And then two more were born, Tina and Annette, to my, my stepdad. So there's seven of us, and I was the middle child of the middle child of the middle child. I've got all the symptoms. I'm sorry about that. Five years of age, after the evangelist had preached, God filled me with the Holy Ghost. I remember mom praying with me. Nobody else is praying with me. I'm just a kid. But at five years of age, God filled me with the Holy Ghost. Man, the services and the church services I've been in, the powerful preachers I've heard, and all the things that I have been through, but still... Around the age of 18, I began to think I was missing something out there. I wasn't missing something out there. I was missing something in here. Lost in the house. And so I began to decide that it didn't matter to me how I've been protected from so many things. I'm going to do my thing. And I remember that service where, after all, I'm a man. 18 years of age, I got up out of church service, tread through the merciful blood of Jesus Christ and walked out that door to begin to try to live my life. And like the prodigal son, I wasted some inheritance on riotous living and some things that I had been protected from and saved from, inheritances I had, I began to just spend it like it didn't mean anything to me. I cannot tell you how many times in that period of years where I was trying to party and find what I thought was joy and acceptance and popularity and fame and any kind of any kind of pleasure of this world, how many times I was at a party with alcohol in my hand. But somehow, the mercy of God, I've never tasted alcohol, even to this day. There in my hand, people were pressing me and pushing me, and I'd hold it, but I would never drink it. How many times that I had a Smoke, whether of roach or nicotine, I had something in my fingers that was lit and never would I let a drag be upon my breath. Sometimes an unlit to my mouth, but <laughs> Mr. Clinton, I never did inhale. I can't tell you how many times the opportunity to be spaced out on drugs and consumed and addicted by alcohol was right there in front of me. But somehow, just the, not me by any means, but the mercy of God and the grace of God just somehow kept me from that. But I ashamedly tell you I pursued the opposite sex for any kind of pleasure I could find with all of my being and found myself in more trouble than I could get out of. I was working at a delivery pizza place and there was a young lady that manned the phones. She was not driving because she was just 16 but taking care of the orders. We began to get very close and now we started dating. I grew up in this. I, I, I know better. I've heard the testimonies. I've, I've heard the teaching, the preaching. I, I, I know better. But because of her lack of accountability and parental guidance, and because I refused to listen to wisdom, we began to get closer. Until one day she came to me as a 17-year-old with tears in her eyes. I was 19. And she says, Tim, I'm pregnant. And I don't know what to do. I don't have any counsel from a good youth pastor. Cut myself off. Don't have any relationship. I don't have a pastor in my life anymore because I've cut him off. 
I can't go to my parents. I've cut ever. I won't listen to anybody. I won't let anybody talk sense to me. I'm doing my own thing. I'm a man. And now, now I'm in trouble. And I began to hide for the next couple of weeks. I would not discuss this with my girlfriend. And we thought we loved each other very much. And the only counsel that she was getting, and I didn't know about it till later, but was her sister-in-law, who was very young also. And her sister-in-law said, you, you don't need to let this destroy your life. You're way too young to have a baby. Tim's too young to have a child. What you need to do is get an abortion, and then after you've had the abortion and you get a little older, more established, then you guys can get married, then you can have a children. So the easy answer is for you to go and get an abortion. And when my girlfriend came to me with this suggestion, coward that I was, I got her in the car and drove her across the state line because at that time, Georgia would not do abortions the third trimester or the second. And so we took her over to Alabama to an abortion clinic. And they took her into the back. I don't know what caused the doctor to do this, but when they came out, he said, I need to speak to you, sir. He said, you understand that I just aborted what would have been a little girl. And that you need to be more careful with the way you behave and the way you act. And I realize that I'm a murderer. So we get in the car and we head back toward home. And that big lie that was told us, just get this out of your life, everything's going to be fine. The shame of what we had done caused our love to turn to hate. And she couldn't stand the sound of my voice. And I hated to look at her because of what it reminded of me. And quickly we grew apart and carry the scars of that even at the age I am today. I got myself into some trouble trying to be free and loose and cool and found myself behind prison bars. Society had deemed that it was better for me to be punished Behind bars than rather for me to have any fines or any probation. I can remember the first time I spoke to that individual in prison with me. With tears in his eyes, he said, how long you in for? I said, how long you? He said, eight years. He said, you know, I just got off the phone with my son today and broke him the news that I was in jail. They were trying to rob a store. He said, I had to tell my seven-year-old son when he said, Dad, when you're coming home? I said, son, when you're 15, I'll be home. And the depression and the feeling of hatred and rebellion that you fight if you're incarcerated. The fear that is in that place of, of the hurt that could come to you, all them battles and the spiritual wickedness. That invades your dreams as you try to sleep. I understand all of that. Finally, I guess I had found my pig pen. Because I prayed a prayer, God. If you'll just get me out and heal my broken heart. I want to live for you. God moved things around miraculously. Only spent three days of what should have been a much longer term. They released me, and as sure as Sunday came, I was getting ready to go to church. And they had was moving, the church was moving from one building to the next, and they're temporarily in an auditorium of a school. And I remember walking into that auditorium of that school thinking, God's going to strike me down. 
And when I walked through that door, knowing the sinner I was, the adulterer, the murderer, the cheater, you name it, I expected lightning to hit me, and I was going to beg for mercy. But when I walked through that door, I felt love stronger than I think I've ever felt in my life. And the mercy of God was reaching to me. I don't know what pastor preached. I just, I just wanted him to quit preaching so he'd give an altar call. And as soon as he gave the altar call, I ran down that auditorium as it was slanted down on the stage about four feet high. And there I stood at that stage, what was the altar of that church, and I began to pray. I remember someone laying hands on my back. And as I started to repent, I, I took my jacket off. I turned around, took my jacket off, and threw it on the first folding chair there. And it was my Sunday school teacher, Jack White, praying for me. And he laughed and he said, ah... Tim, you've come to do business, haven't you? It ain't one of these praying through a hundred times before and going back out like you've done a hundred. You have come to do business. And I said, Brother White, I'm so sick of living the way I am. I'm in so much trouble. I need Jesus. I need him every day of my life. I never want to go back on my relationship with him. And that day at that place, God refilled me with the gift of the Holy Ghost, evidence of speaking in tongues. And his love and his mercy and his grace grew stronger and stronger and stronger. About maybe six, eight months later, I was in the prayer room. God was dealing with me. And finally, everybody had left the prayer room. It was a pre-service prayer. Everybody had left the prayer room, and I was there by myself. God began to speak to me of a calling in my life. And I can remember specifically saying, God, if you want me to go to Africa and eat snails or Philippines and eat dogs, whatever you're asking me to do, I'll go. I'll go. I'll be your servant. Walked out of that place. And when I walked across the foyer, pastor was coming out of his office. They had been singing for some time. And for some reason, some reason, I thought it was a great idea to stop him and him and his anointed walk from his office to the church where he was going to preach and deliver to hundreds of people. And I said, Pastor, I've got to stop you because I feel like God has called me to preach. And I've said, yes. I don't know. I, I thought maybe he was going to jump up and click his heels and embrace me and say, Welcome to the family, preacher, man of God. Instead, he put heavy hands upon my shoulder. And with a look of strong concern, he said, Tim, don't, don't you dare tell anybody. Don't tell anybody where you've come from. There's no respect. There's no reverence for who you are. You've only been back in the church eight months. and You've got a reputation. You, you need to listen to me. Just sit on the front row. Be the biggest worshiper. Make sure you preach the preacher more than anybody. Be in the prayer rooms. Find some place to serve. Clean the toilets. Uh, mow the grass. Find some way to have a servant spirit. And it'll begin to become obvious if you've got a calling in your life. And so I did. I sat on the front row every service. I was mowing the grass for nothing. I was serving everywhere and anywhere I could. I was preaching the preacher in the prayer room. After about a year or so of this, I began to realize that, you know what? Angels come to church, but not the kind with wings. These had skirts on. And I began to see one. Her name was Lois. And uh, wow, what a worshiper she was. What a prayer warrior she was. Got her filled with the Holy Ghost at 16 years of age. Now in the five years since she had been there. Such powerful anointing upon her life. And we began to date a little bit. But she was living all by herself because she had moved out for the sake of college. And her family being a Presbyterian home didn't understand all the decisions she was making as a new Pentecostal apostolic. Because there was little accountability in my life. Because there was even less in hers time came when she came to me and said, Tim, 
I'm pregnant. We're not talking about a backslider that's out partying and do whatever. This is the dude on the front row every day, in the prayer room every day. But I had weaknesses in my life that I wouldn't allow accountability in. I had proved my weaknesses. I'd opened myself up to things that had authority in my life. And just because I had spoken tongues or even spoken tongues many times didn't mean there was no longer temptation in my life. The difference this time is I have a pastor. So Lois and I went into his office. He was looking at his watch and said, I only got a few minutes. Go ahead and hit me with it. And I said, Sit down, Pastor. He sat down behind his desk. He said, come on. Come on, just get it out there. And I said, Pastor, Lois is pregnant. And his head dropped and hit the desk where he was sitting. And he began to repent before God. Tell God it was his fault. I should have seen. I should have known. I should have done this. He lifts his head, big red spot on his forehead, tears pour down his face, and begins to tell us how long, when, what is all this. And we let him know, and he said, okay, what's your decision? What you going to do? And I said, Pastor, that's why we're here. We have no clue what to do. And so he said, do you, do you love her, Tim? And I'm trying to be as honest as I can. I know I've got feelings for her, but I speak to pastor and I say, well, I, I, I think I do. But honestly, I'm not even sure if I even know what love is. And he hit the ceiling. What do you mean you don't know what love is? You're behaving like you are and you're not even sure of your commitment. And he just, he just tore me up one side and down the other. And finally... He said, well, we've got to make a decision here. He turned to Lois and he said, Lois, do you want to marry this boy? And she said, I will. And he said, I'm not asking you if you will. I said, do you want to? And she said, yes. He said, leave the room. <laughs> she left the room and I'm in there with Pastor. And he, he just tears into me again. This really destroys any character, humanity, definitely no morality that I've never had. And, and then finally he says, well, what you going to do? And I don't know where this came from, but you got to realize how important to me it was at the time. I fell to my knees as he was sitting in the chair across from me, and I said, Pastor, what does this mean for my calling? And he leapt up and said, calling? You don't have no calling. You don't have any calling. You've never had a calling. You will never be called of God. You will never preach. You will never do anything for God. You'll be lucky if you're saved. And my heart was breaking. And then he turned and said, you've got one chance in a million that God will restore you. So you're saying I have a chance, right? <laughs> One chance in a million. And so I stood up and said, I, I love that girl. I want to marry her. He brought her back in the room and he said, uh, Lois, Tim wants to marry you. Do you want to marry him? This is how I proposed to my wife. Sort of. We said yes. He said, well, on my calendar... Next Saturday, there's an opening. You are not to tell any of your friends. Only your immediate family, that's your sisters, your brothers, your mom, and your dad, can come if you want me to marry you. And we wanted his approval so bad, his help so bad. There's a community center in town, and, and our friends were so mad at us. So mad at us. We showed up for church the Sunday following, and now we're sitting beside each other. First time anybody ever saw that. And there we are in church worshiping, people looking at us like, what's going on? 
wasn't but a few weeks, and she began to show and prove what everybody had already thought. The church would not allow, it was just their rules at the time, they would not allow any showers in this kind of situation. There was to be no receptions for marriage. In fact, no gifts were given by anyone in the church. They somehow felt like that if they celebrated with us, it would be a celebration of our sin. People didn't talk to us that we had been raised with. People, even Sunday school teachers and stuff, shunned us seemingly until the baby was born. And when Morgan was born, it was the most beautiful thing that I've ever seen. And God gave us this beautiful, healthy girl. She stole my heart from the moment. She was crying, and I spoke to her, and she hushed to listen. I knew she'd always be daddy's girl. I loved so much that she was a puker. I mean, you, you feed her, and you couldn't touch her, but this girl was puking because... Now when all them people that have been shunning us come by and want to love on the baby, right? I say, here, you want to hold her? They pick her up. Oh, she's so beautiful. And she just projectile them. She ruined more dresses and suits. And I was just inwardly, you know, laughing. It was ten years. More babies born. Family life. Little by little, the doors began to open for me to teach Bible studies. I did homeless missions. I preached in the jail ministries. I started a Vesper service in a Presbyterian retirement home. And ladies 103 got the Holy Ghost. And gentlemen 89 baptized in Jesus' name, received the Holy Ghost. Anything that I could put my hand to, but never behind a pulpit. Finally, pastor began to open a door for me not to be youth pastor, but to assist the youth pastor. And so there was some opportunity to have in church. And then I was teaching new converts classes. And we began to teach Bible studies and filled up the rows beside us with people that we had taught Bible study and prayed through the Holy Ghost. And were coming consistently to church. And then at 30 years of age... God opened the door for me to begin to evangelize. And in 24 years of full-time evangelism, I've been all over the world. I've literally seen the dead raised, the crippled walk, disease and sickness eradicated. Thousands upon thousands received the gift of the Holy Ghost. But here's the deal. I'm not over it yet. I'm still amazed that Jesus would forgive me. His dirty, rotten, pig-smelling prodigal. I'm beyond shocked that he would call me, and when I failed him, that he would restore a calling. I'm blown away that he will anoint me to preach the gospel all over the world. I can't believe it's unfathomable, unbelievable, just inconceivable that he would use me to lay hands on sick and they recover. That somehow the gifts of the Spirit could operate through this broken piece of dirt. How could this possibly be? I'm, I'm not over what God has done for me. When I think about this story, I understand how Mary breaks her alabaster box. And she's exposing the thankfulness of what she is now because of where she used to be. It's reminding everybody in the place, oh, that's Mary the harlot. That's Mary the one with seven devils. That's Mary the one that had all this sickness and disease. That's who she is. But that's not who she is. That's who she was before Jesus. 
When you remember the pit from which you are digged, it causes you not to somehow glory in where you are, but it glories who he is and what he can do when he has nothing to work with. I'm, I'm confused at how Simon can look at Mary. Simon who knows what it's like to be sick and no way to get healed. Nothing modern medicine can do for him in his day. And he can look at an individual who was healed and delivered and be indignant at her worship and her testimony. How easy it is to forget Simon. How can Lazarus sit there? How can Lazarus sit there? This is his beloved sister. And he who was dead and his body was decaying and Jesus resurrected him back to life. How can Lazarus sit there and somehow not be broken by the conviction of what he used to be and what Jesus did for him? It is easy to get carried away with the life that we have now and remember the pit from which we were digged. But when we forget that we were just dirt and sin and trash, then we began to bring glory to us and our group and our this and our that. And God seemingly gets pushed more out of the picture. Why is it that it is such a battle to tell our testimony? With the fear that, oh, nobody's going to respect me anymore. It ain't about us. Oh, no one's going to receive my ministry anymore if they know where I can. It's, your ministry's not about you. In fact, it gives glory to him and hope to people who hear the testimony. So forgive me today. I know it's Saturday. But forgive me for coming into this service and breaking my alabaster box of my testimony and the aroma of why I love him and what he has done for me permeates this place. And it's changed the atmosphere. No longer are we wanting to shout and dance. No longer are we wanting up and jumping down. But it's fragrant in your mouth. You can't get away from what God has done. This is the moment that heaven memorializes worship, gratefulness, thankfulness. It's when in the midst of what everybody else might say and think, doesn't matter because I'm not doing this for them. I'm giving glory to Him. I am not telling you my testimony so that you will feel sorry or feel anything for me. I'm doing this because I want you to know how good God has been to me. That I don't deserve to be refilled with the Holy Ghost. I sure don't deserve to have any kind of ministry. There's nothing that I have done. There's nothing that I could do to deserve any of the goodness that he has been to me. But he just is so good. He is so full of mercy. His love is everlasting. His kindness is beyond any kindness. He reaches down to the uttermost and saves. He pulls us from the deep miry clay and puts us on a rock where we're stable, where we're foundational. This is what he does. It's who he is. It's why I am here. Not because I have some talent or giftings to move people in congregations, but simply because he loves me. And I love him. I love you, Jesus. I love you, Jesus. I love you, Jesus. 
It doesn't matter to me what anyone thinks when it comes to my relationship with the Lord because He loves me. And I'm grateful and I'm thankful. And if I live many, many years and water goes under the bridge for years upon years, I always want to carry the scars of where I've used to be. So with a quick look, I can see, oh yeah, that's who I used to be. Because it's not about me and what kind of reputation or position. or like, It's all about glory unto God. And if you can find yourself in a place where you're grateful and thankful, and you can remember the pit from which you're digged, whatever your powerful testimony is, then there's an opportunity for heaven and your Lord and Savior Jesus to memorialize your life or even your moment of worship and praise that is so sacrificial and so vulnerable that all of heaven will never forget. Let me tell you this true story, and I'm, I'm finished, of Mary. Jesus makes this statement. Everywhere Mary is pre everywhere the gospel is preached, this that she has done will be a memorial for her. And from that moment on, there's a character. You'll never find this character in the gospels until after this story, whether it's Luke 7 or it's way in the end of Matthew. You won't find it until this story. And then there's a story called Mary Magdalene, this character. But it doesn't mean Mary who came from the city of Magdala, no. The scripture says very in particular in Luke, Mary who was called Magdalene. Mary Magdalene because the word Magdalene means rostrum. It means podium. It means memorial. And every time you say Mary Magdalene, you're saying Mary the one memorialized. They even changed her name so that everybody that spoke of her, every time her name was mentioned, she was singled out as the one that had the memorial moment in Simon's house, Mary Magdalene. It very well could be that God changes the name of who you are with just a few moments of worship. He could change the identity of what this church has had to come through. He could change the identity of what is expected for your future with just a few moments of that type of worship. It becomes a memorial moment that heaven never forgets about. That heaven and God himself always remembers and when your name is mentioned, the way that you worship, even in the midst of peer pressure, the way that you showed your gratefulness, even in the midst of pride that tried to stop you, even when others say, oh, don't tell your story because people can't handle it, and you begin to worship in such a way, God says, I'm going to memorialize that, change your name, your future, who you are. If you have a testimony of how God loved you, whether you've been in the church all your life or you've been a backslider or you were just a heathen or a good person before God found you, if you've got a testimony, I want you to stand all over the building. Why don't you remember again the pit from which you were digged? And where we should be today, some of us prison bars are definitely in rehabs, probably some already in the grave, with broken families, with broken relationship, where we should be if not for Jesus. And then I'm simply opening up this altar. You can come. 
and worship like you have done many times before. But there might be just one or two that has an alabaster box today. That an offering, a financial sacrifice, or a worship of loudness that would interrupt the place, or a Holy Ghost speaking mercy and grace of God that will shift the very environment of where we're at. Do you love Him? Are you grateful? And according to your gratitude, according to your thanksgiving, somebody break an alabaster box right now. (laughs) Pour it out on Him. He's worthy. Not for your glory, not for your detriment, but for His glory. Hey, you're worthy. Lord, there's no one like you. I love you, Jesus. I love you, Jesus. That's it. Somebody start worshiping. Thank you again for joining us here at Grace Apostolic Church. Hopefully this message spoke to you as it did for many others. Grace Apostolic Church is a church family that you can be a part of. If you would like to connect to the church, the best way would be to visit our website at gacclawson.org or visit one of our services. Our service times are Sundays at 11 a.m. and Wednesday nights at 7.30 p.m. For more information, you can go online at gacclawson.org. Thanks again for joining us. We'll see you next time.